interesting all the, the focus this morning on the sort of the theology of preaching. I've been thinking a lot about that as I prepare. And I'm comforted that if God can speak His Word through a donkey, we have a chance this morning. Um, and He can. <laughs> so... We're going to be in Malachi this morning. That is the, actually the last chapter, the la- or the last book of the Old Testament. So, if you, can, if you have one of the study guides, it's the last book in the study guide. If you have a, a Bible, the easiest way to get to Malachi, because it's a very short book, is go find Matthew, and then back up until you find Malachi. Um, let's pray, and then we'll get started. Father, we, we come to you this morning, and we thank you, Lord, for your word. It teaches us. It warns us, it comforts us, uh, it inspires us, Father, and, and You have given it to us to benefit us, to draw us to You. Father, I pray that You'll change our hearts, that You will draw our hearts to You this morning through Your Word. Um, it is only in You that we can find these words of life. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so Malachi, it's interesting, and we put a little outline in the in the back there, that very last page of some questions. And that's what we're going to be focused on today. In the last few weeks, though, we've heard about Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. That's kind of been our focus for the last three weeks or so. And these men returned from the exile. When, when Israel was exiled to Babylon after the destruction of Babylon or the destruction of Jerusalem by Babylon, there was an exile. And on the people of Jerusalem were shipped out, mostly. When Babylon then was conquered by Persia, they migrated down, some of them migrated down into Persia. Um, we talked about that when we looked at es- Esther. Um, but now, these men have been sponsored by the king of Persia himself to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. Fascinating. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And they reestablished the sacrifices and the holy days. These men were faithful, they were courageous, and they were obedient. And God blessed their work. He protected them. He allowed them to resettle this great city that had been destroyed by Babylon. And remember, when we were talking about this, remember they looked at the temple. When the temple was was dedicated, and people were shouting for joy, and people were weeping, because they remembered how great it had been, and, and it wasn't what it was before. But there was joy and there was weeping. There was this just emotional passion there. And remember last week we talked about when the words of Scripture were read to the people by Ezra. And they were weeping because they were convicted by what they heard. They they realized we are not following these laws that were given to us. But then immediately they turned to celebration because they were commanded, go celebrate. God has mercy on you. He's established these festivals for you. Go and celebrate. So this weeping, this celebration theme, it's, it's, it's dramatic, truly. Now Malachi comes along a few years after these events. The people are settled back in Jerusalem. The initial wonder, the marvel at the restoration has happened. Now that's, that's a reality. It's not a surprise anymore. It's normal daily life now. The fire of that revival from Ezra's reading of the Word, that's cooled off a bit. They're following the practices of Leviticus from the law. They're going about their lives. 
the passion of their hearts that was there has, has started to turn to some cold ritual. And now they're beginning to question God. They're even questioning His intentions. And that's really the, the focus of the whole book, is dealing with these questions that the people are asking. Our focal passage is going to be from the very, very front of the, of the book. And then I'll hit a few more as we go through. But Malachi 1, 1 through 5. Hear the word of the Lord. A pronouncement. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Yet you ask, how have you loved us? Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother? This is the Lord's declaration. Even so, I loved Jacob, but I hated Esau. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and gave his inheritance to the desert jackals. Though Edom says, we have been devastated, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of armies says this, they may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called a wicked country and the people the Lord has cursed forever. Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say, the Lord is great, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. So this is an interesting thing, right? They're questioning God's love. This first question here. How have you loved us? It seems crazy as we study the history of Israel that they could even ask such a question. How have you loved us? Really? How have you loved us? And God's answer is interesting. Because we see the scripture filled with direct evidence of God's love. How He, he, he chose Abraham and He walked Abraham through a life of faith. And then he, he gave, Abraham, gave Isaac to Abraham. He, he passed the promise on. And then Jacob came and he passed the promise on. And he watched over Jacob as Jacob lived. And then he sent Joseph by an amazing story. He sent Joseph to Egypt to prepare a place to save the family from starvation. And the family became a, a nation in Egypt. And, they, and then they became slaves and God delivered them out like... You can look at this. He delivered them out and gave them what? An entire land. And He told them, I'm going to, I'm going to put you in houses that you didn't build and I'm going to give you vineyards you didn't plant and fields that you didn't plant. You're going to benefit from all this that you didn't do. I'm going to clear your enemies from in front of you. And He did these things. And now they're saying, hmm, how have you loved us? You say you love us, but really, how have you loved us? Can you believe they're asking this? I think that's kind of how God feels about it too. Because His answer in this case is not a litany of the things He's done for them. It's this. What about your brother? What about Esau? You want to think about how I loved you, look what happened to Esau. He's destroyed. And if he wants to rebuild, guess what? I'll destroy what he rebuilds because he's cursed forever. He's done. Now, this is an interesting thing. God said, Jacob I loved, Esau I have hated. So what does he mean by this? I want to say he means a couple things. Probably means more than I'm going to say today. But, but love and hate are shown by action, not just emotion. We, think, we tend to think of love and hate as emotions and feelings, right? But God tends to, to uh, associate actions. And so when he talks about hating Esau, he's talking about destroying Esau as a nation, Right? And loving Judah or loving Jacob is sustaining and providing and allowing them to rebuild. So there's an action and there's a distinction that God is making. He's watched over them um, and he watched over Jacob, but he destroys Edom. 
Do you remember the plagues in Egypt? This is a very clear case where God makes a distinction between one group and another group. And he, he specifically said that I'm going to make a distinction between the Egyptians and the Israelites. I'm going to show you that it matters which side you're on. Because I'm going to kill the Egyptian livestock and I'm going to keep the Israelite livestock. I'm going to let hail fall on the Egyptian territory and I'm going to protect the land of Goshen where the people of Israel are. Because God makes the distinction. Because He acts. The other point is, and this one is a little tricky, but God's love and hate are His to decide and they're not based on our merit. I want to walk through this just a little bit. We know that God made a promise to Abraham. And then for two generations, He chose the younger brother to carry the promise. Against convention. Against what was expected. It was expected and normal that the older brother would carry the promise, would get the blessing. But God overrode that in two cases there. Isaac over Ishmael, and then Jacob over Esau. This is really interesting. In Moses' final message to Israel before he was taken, before he died, um, which is called the book of Deuteronomy, one great sermon, a really long sermon, um, Moses tells them that God didn't choose them because they were great, and He didn't choose them because they were good. And I want to read these verses to you because I, I find them really interesting. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7 and 8 says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God's chosen them for His treasured possession out of everybody. And then 7 clearly says, It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Just let that sink in for a minute. Not because you're great or good. It's because He loves you. Deuteronomy 9.5 then says, It's not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land. And then the next verse, He follows up and says, Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. <laughs> God is not impressed with Israel. He's not rewarding them for their goodness, for their righteousness. He just loves them. I'm reminded, it's it's kind of personal to say this, but Connie's not here, so it won't be too weird. But when, when we were dating and trying to figure out about marriage and all this, there were these conversations that we would have, and many of you might be able to relate to this, conversations of what? Like, why do you love me? What is it? Right? And, and we wanted to try and, and put some rational reason to it and try to figure it out so that we could have something concrete to hang on to. Why is it that she loves me? Because if I can't figure that out, then she, maybe she won't love me at some point. And, and that's kind of what's going on here. We had to conclude finally, well, there is no rational reason. I mean, if you know me, you have to realize it must be an irrational reason that she sticks around. But, but God is choosing them Not because they're great, not because they're good, not because He's impressed with them or He knows they're going to be faithful because none of those things are true. He's choosing them because He loves them. And it's just that simple. It's just that inexplicable. But God is a person and He he chooses how He wants to love. And so we see this and we go on and this... This then leads to, this, actual, this passage is quoted by Paul in one of the most difficult parts of Scripture. Let's be frank about that. 
In Romans 9, Paul quotes this passage. And he says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. These, these words are from Romans 9, and they have caused a lot of difficulty in understanding. And Peter talks about Paul's words and how they, people misunderstand them and they get really worked up about it. And that hasn't stopped, even in our day. But, but these are straight from Scripture. We have to wrestle with them. We have to take them in. And it reminds me of the, the hard passage, Jesus saying, you have to drink my blood and eat my flesh. That's where the, the words came from today. And the, and the disciples said, oh, these are hard words. I, I don't like them. And Jesus said, well, I mean, th- those guys just left. What about you? And Peter says, where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. I have nowhere else to go. So... These are some of these words of life, and we have to wrestle with them. And we may not like them immediately, but we have to wrestle with them. But the deal here is, and I want to do. I want to read a little illustration from this book. A little plug for our morning men's group, and we spent a little time talking about this idea the other day. Um, this book is called "The Stranger on the Road to Emmaus," and the reference there is that when Jesus met the the disciples on the road, they didn't know who he who he was, and it was after the resurrection, but they didn't really understand what was happening. And Jesus is walking on the road and explaining to them things until they finally figure out, oh my goodness, Jesus was the Messiah. And, and everything is good. And that's, the, that's the, the gist of the title there. But there's this little concept we have to understand to understand the goodness of the gospel. And the, the way this author describes it is this creator-owner idea. I'm going to read it out of here because it's... I just don't need to ad-lib if I read it. Um, The concept of the Creator also being the owner has lost its strength in our industrialized, money-driven economy. I remember walking through a tribal village in Papua New Guinea. Every item I asked about, whose paddle is this? Whose canoe is that? Elicited a response that designated an owner. Upon inquiring how they knew who the owner was, they looked at me incredulously. Well... The owner's the one who made it. The creator-owner connection was very strong. When I questioned them if it would be alright for me to break a paddle, they were just as emphatic that it would not be a good idea unless I wanted to have trouble with the creator-owner. Taking it a step further, I asked if it was acceptable for the owner to break it. They gave a tribal shrug and, and a nod. It's okay for the owner to break it. He made it. And, and the point of that is, is for us to understand God is the creator-owner. Of everything and everyone. And what he chooses to do is his call. And if, if we can get that in our minds, then it, it might prevent us from asking obnoxious questions like the Israelites are asking here. Or at least understanding God's answers. So, so I wanted to bring that up. But, but I don't want to leave it there in this uh, kind of weird and, and difficult state. Because the answer to this question... It's wonderful. How has God loved us? That's the question. And the answer is, God loved us by sending His Son to save us. 
It's the ultimate answer. We see in John 3, 16 through 18, and we're familiar with 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. How many of us have memorized that? Verse 17 and 18, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So we see again a distinction between the condemned and the saved. That, that is all through Scripture, and it's right here. And, and so there's judgment, there's redemption. If we don't acknowledge the judgment, then the love that brings the redemption has no meaning. It has no value. So the amazing thing is, God created us, and He owns us. And He has the right to destroy us if we displease Him. And guess what? We have displeased Him. We've disobeyed, and we deserve destruction. But instead, He has come from His domain of perfection, of power, of purity. And He's come into our world of corruption and death. And He has taken the punishment that we deserve and given us, in exchange, His perfect righteousness. He didn't have to do this. So why did He? Because He loves us. Because He loves us. That's why. How have you loved us? He sent Jesus. When Israel asks cynically about that, they don't know yet the answer. They don't know what's coming. But we know. We know who has come. Right? Verse 5 of the, of the focal passage there to conclude that little part. Um, if you notice in verse 5, what does he say at the end? Your own eyes will see this and you yourselves will say the Lord is great even beyond the borders of Israel. So as we take comfort in the fact that, love, that God loves us and He's provided this Savior, there's another thing here we can do. We can tell others about it. Then that's what we ought to be doing. God is great and God is love. And God has sent a Savior to save us. We need to be telling. God wants His glory to be broadcast through the world. Next question. So they go on, and I'm going to go read this passage, but they're questioning their duties to God. Question or, uh, Verse 6 says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. But if I'm a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's your fear of me? Says the Lord of armies. To you priests who despise my name. Yet you ask, how have we despised your name? By presenting defiled food on my altar. How have we defiled you, you ask? When you say the Lord's table is contemptible. When you present a blind animal for sacrifice. Is it not wrong? And when you present a lame or sick animal. Is it not wrong? Bring it to your governor. Would he be pleased with you or show you favor? Asks the Lord of armies. So what he's talking about here is that. And uh, Colby was reading from Leviticus this morning, right? There's so many rules about, the, about what right sacrifice looked like. But one key point of the, all the sacrifices is you bring a perfect animal. You don't bring an animal that you want to get rid of anyway. You don't, want to get, you don't bring an animal that has no value. You bring a perfect animal. One that you would like to keep, but you're not going to. You're going to sacrifice it. That is the whole point. And what these guys were doing only a few years after this Ezra revival is they're bringing the junk. They're bringing the stuff they don't really want. 
And they're, the priests are overlooked. They're looking away. Ah, oh, yeah, I don't really see the, yeah, that animal's got his eye gouged out. I didn't really notice that. Right? No. That's not okay. And God sees everything. And God is saying, do you think you could get away with that? If you brought such a gift to your governor and said, hey, governor, I got a gift for you. Yeah, it's got three legs and then some kind of skin infection. But, you know, it's for you. I brought it for you. No. No, no, no. And he's saying, I am your creator owner, and you want to bring that to me? I don't think so. Remember that when when they first consecrated the temple, and they first installed the priesthood, the very first thing in the desert, you remember what happened? Nadab and Abihu came out, the sons of Aaron, and they decided to have a variation on the worship process. And God said, nope. They authored, they offered unauthorized fire and God killed them on the spot. Aaron was just figuring out how to do this whole priest thing, and suddenly his sons are dead. And God said, Yeah, because my name is going to be glorified. We're not going to have that. And by the way, don't grieve for them. You have a job to do. The rest of Israel can grieve, but not you. That that is the God that we serve. He he demands respect, and he deserves respect. Okay? Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. That's what he told to Aaron. So, if that is the kind of God that we're dealing with, one who demands respect, but is also so gentle and loving and, and careful with us, how can we cheat? How could, how could the people of Israel cheat on their, their gifts and their sacrifices? And like, like Weston was saying this morning, when we, when we come for worship... We don't come with the leftovers. We come with the best. right? We come and we give our, our whole hearts, our genuine and sincere worship to God. We're not going to go through the motions. That's what Israel was doing here. And, and hey, can we do that today? Have we ever been guilty of that? I mean, if I'm honest, yeah, I sure have been guilty of that. And I'm, I'm sure that many of you have too. It's not okay though. We need to come and bring a sincere heart of worship to God. Another question. Malachi 2.13 This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer respects your offerings or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you've acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Tough words. Tough words. Do you see how important marriage is to God? We don't have time to go into this today, but, but in Scripture, marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and Israel. It's a picture between, of the relationship between Jesus and His church. It is sacred. Marriage is sacred. How can you throw away that relationship and expect God to honor it? You, you can't. And this is a stern warning. Because they've, because they've been unfaithful, God's not hearing their requests anymore. He's, he's rejecting their offerings. That's, that's harsh. And I, and I want that to sink in for a second, because it's heavy and it's hard. But I also want to say that we're not without hope here. Some of us have had broken marriage, and that's, that's a terrible thing. But it's not the end of our lives. It's not the end of our service to God. Because our God is a God of healing and forgiveness. There's another uh, 
moving on down the chapter here. In Malachi 3.8, the question comes up, How have we robbed you? Let me read this. Since the days of your fathers, you have turned from my statutes. You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of armies. Yet you ask, how can we return? God says, will a man rob God, yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payments of the tenth and the contributions. You're suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of armies. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. What an amazing thing for God to say. In this chapter of dire warnings, in this chapter of of harshness of God scolding them for their attitude, what does He say? See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. And the other thing that is really remarkable here, he's actually saying, test me. Test me in this way. Elsewhere in Scripture, we see, do not put God to the test. Be careful. God is not one to be tested by us. We test God and we fail. But here he says, test me. God's directly saying it. He's challenging him. You want to see me pour out blessings? Then you give. You give as I've commanded you to give. Be generous be sincere in your giving, and watch what I do for you. Now, we have, to, we have to address that there is a false gospel that some refer to as the prosperity gospel, right? That anything you ask for, you can have, because God wants you to be rich, right? Um, that's not actually true. And, but the problem is you can take a passage like this, and if you just think about it in a certain way and without context, it sounds like, well... If I put the money in God's slot machine, He's going to pour the money out. That's the rule, so I can just count on that. But it doesn't really work that way. Um, This passage does reveal something about God. He is a giver. He is generous. He loves to bless. And He owns all the creation, so He has the means to bless. Right? These things are all true. All true. But He doesn't always choose to bless with material riches. If you look at the apostles and Paul, especially the famous verse Philippians 4.13, right? Another famous prosperity kind of verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? That's what it it says. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. But if you look at the verses directly preceding that, what's Paul talking about? He says, I know how to be content when I'm completely starving and I have nothing. And I know how to be content when I have plenty. I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Because Paul suffered deprivation, right? And if I think, if I think of this promise of giving and serving as as a way to manipulate God's uh, great vending machine, I got to look at Paul and I got to think, did I give more than Paul? No, <laughs> no. Did it, am, I, am I somehow more faithful than Paul? No. Like, there's nothing about me that compares to Paul. And Paul suffered. So how in the world can I think that I, I should get better than Paul? Well, Paul did get, he did get blessed immensely. He got salvation. And he got, he, he got to influence and see the, the benefit of 
of lots of brothers and sisters and children in Christ come to God because of His work. That's a blessing that means a whole lot more, actually, than material wealth that he didn't have. So the other thing about that, though, is it's easy for us in sometimes to have little faith and kind of just spiritualize everything and say, well, God just is talking about spiritual blessings. That way I don't have to worry about having faith that actually things in the real world are going are gonna to be affected by God. But that's not right either. Because sometimes God does choose to bless materially. Um, so we do need to give, and we need to give in a real way. But why? We, we give of our money because that puts God first. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I always, I always like to think about that in two different ways. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And one way to think about it is that it's a diagnostic. I can look... If I show you my checkbook, you can look at how I spend my money. You could say, I can see what Ken cares about by how he spends his money. I can see it. So it's, it's like a diagnostic. The other way is, I can use my checkbook to steer my heart. Right? Because if I start writing checks to the things God cares about, guess what? I'm going to start caring about those things too. I can actually steer my heart. And Proverbs told us, we talked about this a few weeks ago, that we should protect our heart, we should guide our heart. And that's, this is one way we can do it. Giving defeats idolatry. Okay, We have so many things in our lives we want, that we seek after, and giving to God lets us say no to idols. So give. Give generously. Give your best. Tithe if you can. Tithe just means give a tenth. If you can't, work up to it. Trust Him. This isn't about just building the facilities of the church. It isn't that God needs your money. God has everything, right? It is about getting your heart turned to God. That is what it's about. Okay, the last, the last question here. It's really a powerful one. And I did this kind of out of order in the chapter, but this is from Malachi 2.17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you ask, how have we wearied Him? When you say... Everyone who does what is evil is good in the Lord's sight, and He is delighted with them. Or else, where is the God of justice? This is a favorite, favorite topic for, uh, for skeptics and people who want to challenge God to talk about this problem of evil. That's the philosophical term for it, the problem of evil. Because the basic idea here is, how can a good and powerful God allow evil to exist, right? That's the challenge. And, they, and a lot of people think that that's an unsolvable riddle, that you, you pose that to a Christian and the Christian's just going to curl up in a little ball and not going to know what to do with that. Because we do see evil in this world, right? So the question is, if God is good and powerful, why does evil still exist? Because surely if He was powerful, He could take it out if He actually cared. So that causes them to question. So maybe He isn't as good as people say. Or maybe He's good, but He's not powerful enough. And, or the other way to think about it, maybe he's just sitting up in heaven and he doesn't really pay attention. But Scripture has two answers to this question, maybe more, but two main ones that I could think of. There's first the answer to Job, which is a powerful answer. And it basically is, where were you and who are you to ask me to solve this riddle for you? You don't have the right. I'm the creator-owner. You're a creature. 
I'm not going to answer your question other than to say, I established the world and you didn't. But the other answer is the answer that Peter gives us. God is patient. God desires to save and save and save. And so He waits and He holds back. Because when He brings judgment, when He cleans out all evil, it's over. The time of saving will be done. And so He's patient and He waits. And what's the reason for that? Love and mercy. That's the reason. That's a comforting answer to me. Now, those are two answers for Job and for Peter. What's Malachi's answer? Well, Malachi 3 then says, See, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant you delight in, see, he is coming, says the Lord of armies. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who will be able to stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's bleach. He will be like a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will present offerings to the Lord in righteousness. I don't know how many of you recognize that, but I'm sure Rhonda could sing it for us. He's like a refiner's fire and he shall purify the sons of Levi. Mm. That's from the Messiah. Well, it's actually from Malachi, but uh, Handel used it. Um, it's, it's one of my favorite parts, actually, of the whole thing. What is, what is he talking about here? There's judgment and there's, and there's purification. And they're two different things. For the day is coming, burning like a furnace, when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them says the Lord of armies. This is from Malachi 4. Not leaving them root or branches, but for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and playfully jump like calves from a stall. Picture that. There's destruction. There's judgment. There's fury. There's death. But for you who fear my name, you're going to go out and playfully jump like calves from a stall. Do you see the distinction that God makes between the ones that He loves and the ones that He hates? Between the ones who believe in Him and the ones who do not? This is, what the, this is the, the last words um, from the Old Testament prophets before Messiah comes. Behold, I will send my messenger... If I could get the, uh, the musicians to come up, I'll just have a few concluding comments. We've been walking through these, these minor prophets, I say that in quotes, these last few weeks, and this is the last one. And everyone calls them the minor prophets. I didn't come up with that, of course. Uh, but, it, but it makes me feel uncomfortable because these are men who, who God designated to deliver His Word to the people of Israel. They wrote books of the Bible. If they're minor, I don't know what we are. You know, but but anyway, Malachi is the last one that we're going to look at. We're going to close the Old Testament. We're going to close the Minor Prophets. And there's about a 400 year gap from Malachi to John the Baptist. Some people say John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's a New Testament guy, Old Covenant, maybe. Um, 
Jesus said he was the greatest man, man born to woman. But what, what is this message of Malachi? What is it? I, I think the one that really comes to me is the answer to this question. How, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Jesus, that's how. He came to die for us. And where is the God of justice? This other philosophical question. Where is the God of justice? Jesus. And He's coming again. Have confidence in His love. Have confidence in His justice. If you're married, honor Him with your marriage. He doesn't give up on you, so don't give up on your marriage. Worship Him sincerely. Understand that it's for His love that He sent Jesus. It's because He loves us. We don't have to figure it out. We just have to accept it.